We have been working through Matthew 21, and today we're in Matthew 22. And it's Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. And just to give you a quick review of what's been going on in the week, not even what's been going on in Jesus' life. I mean, He's been doing miracles. He's been revealing that He is the promised one. And Matthew is recording this and writing this to a group of Jewish readers who would know these Old Testament prophecies that he talks about. The same ones like in Zechariah 9 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that said the Messiah will come riding on the foal of a donkey and Jesus rode down on the foal of a donkey from Bethany all the way down the Mount of Olives over the Kidron Valley through the Eastern Gate fulfilling that prophecy. And He did it on a Monday... 10 Nisan of 33, which was exactly 173,880 days from the time that Artaxerxes proclaimed to Nehemiah to go rebuild Jerusalem. And that's what Daniel talked about in Daniel chapter 9, the 69 weeks, 62 weeks plus 7. Because the Jewish year was 360 days. He multiplied that out. From that time was exactly 173,880. On that day, that Lamb Selection Monday, Jesus rode the donkey down. He rode down. The people were going, Hosanna, Hosanna from Psalm 118. Save us, save us. And what they were saying is, we want you to save us from Rome. But He didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from their own sin. And from to be in relationship with God. Somewhere along the line, the Jewish people mistook what God wanted them to do, which was just, they thought it was just to enjoy the benefits of being chosen by Him and the blessing of being chosen by Him. And I think somewhere along the line, the American church has fallen prey to the same mentality because we've become consumers. Everything is about us. Even our church services are designed for the people in the pew not to do what God says to do, but what the people in the pew want. That was never the way God intended it. The prophets never came for what the people said. They came for what God said. And, and so somewhere along the line, we have made some of the same mistakes that these Pharisees and religious leaders made. So I think this stuff is very instructive for us as we look at this. Especially as we follow through what happens because what we see is the response of these people to this incredibly gracious king. This God who is so loving that in spite of continued rebellion and rejection. And guys, we're not talking a few years. Hundreds, hundreds of years as a people. God has blessed them, delivered them. And He sent person after person to tell them, I love you. I just want relationship with you. And they continually spurn those messengers. In fact, they killed them. And on this week, the one who was coming, the Messiah coming, was supposed to set everything right. So Jesus on Monday rode on the donkey, got down to the temple gate, turned around because He was not going to be put into power by popular opinion. And He goes back to Bethany on Tuesday. He walks back into town, walks by a fig tree, sees an opportunity. In fact, I don't think He just sees an opportunity. I think it was a created opportunity. I think He knew where He was going. The fig tree was supposed to have fruit on it because it had leaves. And if a fig tree had leaves, it was supposed to have fruit. It didn't. And Jesus cursed it in front of His disciples, teaching them that a fruitless tree is a useless tree. If it's a fruit tree and it's supposed to grow fruit, but it's not producing fruit, it's useless. 
And so he goes on from there down to the temple, turns over the tables, cleaning up the temple temporarily. Not the whole thing, but just saying, this is not what my father wanted. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Nobody says anything. He goes back to Bethany on Tuesday evening, comes back on Wednesday. The disciples see the fig tree withered and they go, wow, look at that. It's withered. He cursed it yesterday and it's dead. And they're so blown away by that, even though, think about this, they've seen Him raise the dead, they've seen Him heal blind people, they've seen Him heal lame people, they've seen Him calm the sea on a stormy day. Now, if you, I don't know if you've ever been in a really, really, really bad storm, but if you've ever ridden out a really bad storm, for somebody to come in and go, shh, and just be quiet, that would blow you away. And so to me, it's kind of funny that they go, hey, the fig tree's withered, but they did. And so Jesus took them back to Zechariah chapter 4 to remind them that if you say to this mountain, be flat, it'll be flattened. He says thrown into the sea, but he's taking them back to Zechariah 4 where it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah was telling Zerubbabel not to worry about the opposition. And his disciples had some opposition to worry about, but, but he didn't want them to worry. He wanted them to trust him because he was in control and he was telling them a very important lesson. If you have faith, you can say to this mountain, be thrown in the sea. It's about God and what God's plan is. And somewhere along the line, we've, even, we've got preachers that preach that if you have faith in faith, then that's all that matters. You just got to have a lot of faith. In fact, I was talking to my daughter-in-law the other day, and she was telling me her mother was told by a preacher, the reason you have cancer is because you don't have enough faith. And that's awful. That's not why she's got cancer. I mean, that, that, that's, that's ridiculous. I know people that have been told their children died because they didn't have enough faith. That, that is an abuse it's an, a spiritual abuse is what that is. Because what's more important than the amount of faith is the object of your faith. And that's what Jesus was taking. He was taking them back to Zechariah to say, hey, it's not the amount of faith, guys. It's what your faith is in. Not by your might, not by your strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he took him back there. Well, on that Wednesday, he goes back into the temple. When he's in the temple, he's teaching. Now, you don't normally teach in the temple. I don't know if you knew that. The temple was only where they offered sacrifices. In fact, that was the whole purpose of the temple, was to offer a sacrifice. And, and the sacrifice brought forgiveness. The teaching took place in the synagogues outside the temple normally. But Jesus was teaching in the temple. And as he taught there, these religious leaders come up and they go, hey, whose authority are you doing all this under? Why don't you turn these tables over? Who gave you the right to do that? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to answer that by asking you this. Who gave John his authority, heaven or man? And they didn't know what to say. He put them in a box. Because if they say, they even conspired, Matthew recorded what they said. If we say from heaven, then we'll implicate ourselves. But if we say from man, the crowd will get upset with us because the crowd knows John was from God. And they said, we don't know. And he said, neither will I answer you. And then he tells them three parables. We looked at the first one two weeks ago, which was the two sons. All three parables have a son in it. All right, the first parable, one son, the dad says, go do this. The son says, I don't want to do it, but he does it. Second son says, I'll do it, but he doesn't. And Jesus said, which one was righteous? They said, the first son. And he, he, instead of commending them for their right answer, 
he immediately goes into attack mode and says, the tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in before you because it, John came preaching the way of righteousness, which was the word of God, and you didn't repent. And even when you saw these other people, the tax collectors and prostitutes changed their life. Levi was a changed life. Zacchaeus, a changed life. Mary Magdalene, a changed life. The woman at the well in Samaria, a changed life. When you saw these lives, still you didn't repent. I mean, one of people, that's the thing, one of the presidents, we were doing quotes the other day, I, I can't remember if it was Thomas Jefferson or one of the other presidents, but one of them said, the greatest thing about Christianity is it's the only faith that can change a heart. It's the only faith that can change a heart. And these were changed hearts, but it didn't matter. The Pharisees didn't change. They didn't, they didn't respond to that. So then Jesus tells them another parable. Again, all three of these deal with rejection, but they all deal also with the love of the Father to continue pursuing. And we looked at last week a relentless love, a king's love that is relentless. And this king's love is relentless was seen in the parable of the vineyard. In the parable of the vineyard, remember, the, the landowner has a vineyard that he's invested in. He built a watchtower, built a wine vat. And he leased it to tenants so they could work it and then take a part of it for themselves. But then they would use it to give back to the master who would use it to bless other people. But they didn't do that. When the master sent his servant to collect, they beat the first one, killed the second one, stoned the third one. And then he goes, okay, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him because when you see the son, it's like seeing the owner in the Middle East. And he thought maybe if his son went, they would respect him. And so he sends the son in there and they kill the son. And when he does that, Jesus asked them a question in front of everybody. You've got to remember, there's hundreds of priests that are around him right now, thousands of people, and he says, so what will that landowner do? And remember, when a person in the Middle East is hearing a story like this, they're trying to figure out their role in the story. By this point, they know what their role in the story is. They're the people that beat up the servant. They're the person that killed the son. And they said... He will throw those miserable wretches out and give the land to somebody else. And we saw not only a king's love that is relentless, but we saw a king's love rejected. And what did that king do when they killed his son? He rejected them. He came in and he rejected them. He said, okay, I'm going to replace you. You've been given this stewardship of being taught the Word, taught the Scriptures. You know all the theology, but you're not doing anything with it. You're holding it and hoarding it for yourself. So he brings in fishermen from Galilee. He brings in fishermen from Bethsaida. And he uses them. He uses guys like Levi, a, a tax collector. And he throws these guys out, basically. And then we get to today's parable, the parable of the wedding feast. Matthew 22. And if you look at 22, starting in verse 1, we're going to work all the way down to verse 22, and we're going to look at this first, this third parable, and also we're going to look at what happens in response to the parables. After the parables, the Pharisees and religious leaders get so upset, they go, we're going to trap him. So they come up with three attempts to trap and trick Jesus into being able to be arrested. And we're going to look at the first one of those. 
So, and, and in this parable today, we're going to see not only is a king's love relentless and rejected, we're going to see a king's love that is open to everyone. Unlike most cultures where a king's uh, favor is only for the rich, the wealthy, those that can do something for the king, his, this king's love is open for everyone. We're also going to see a king's love that must be overflowing. And what I mean by that is that king's love has to be seen, evidenced in the life of the people that it's given to. And then with the story of the question of the tax, we're going to see a king's love that also shows ownership. It claims ownership on our life. It is a king's love that claims ownership over us. Because he loves us so much, he claims us as his own. And we're going to see that in that story. It it didn't start out that way. It started out as a trap for the Pharisees, but it ends up Jesus turns it like he does so often, and he teaches about what it means to really worship God. We're his. And so let's read in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. I'm sorry, 1 through 22. Starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin. He said, said, "Show Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. May God bless his word. When we have a wedding here, first of all, let's just be really honest. Most of us guys, we're not into weddings, right? I mean, really, we weren't even into our own wedding, all right? I mean, much less somebody else's. I mean, the only thing we wanted is we wanted to get to the honeymoon part, right? That's what guys think about. But the wedding feast in that day 
was huge. It was a week-long process. And when you had the wedding of royalty, it was even more a big deal. The whole nation would be involved with it. Think about it today. You know when they do the royal wedding over in England, even though it's not like near what it was back then, People still watch. They still want to watch these weddings. They still want to, they're enthralled with all the money and all the pomp and circumstance. In that day, when a king threw a feast and he had a big celebration, everybody wanted to be invited. And so when Jesus is telling this story, you remember this is the third story of three parables, all dealing with rejection and the king's love. And so We saw last week about a king's love that was relentless in the vineyard and it was rejected there. So he then comes back again and tells them this other story, hoping that maybe this story they will be listening and those listening around will go, wow, what a great king. He's opening up his wedding to everybody. And that's the first thing we see in this is that it's a king's love that is open to everyone. Unlike other countries, you can't even go in to see kings. You can't go in to get in. You can't, I mean, just say, hey, I want to be invited to the wedding. They have to invite you. They choose who they invite. And this king in this story sends out the invitation to people and the original invitees say, we don't want to come. And what's so incredibly gracious about this king is, and, and remember, as he's telling the story, what are the listeners doing? They're trying to figure out who they are. They know they're not the king. King represents God. He always represented God in the stories. So the next person is the son. Well, they're not the son. They know they're not the son. In fact, I really believe by this point already, they know who they are. They know who the son is because Jesus had claimed to be the son. And so it says he's throwing a wedding feast for the son and he sent his servants to call those invited, but they wouldn't come. And it says again, he sent other servants saying, please, I've got... Fat calves that I've slaughtered. Now, that, all that language is is saying this was one heck of a party. It was a, it was a spread, an unbelievable spread they laid out. And the party was supposed to happen when the king said it was ready. So they send out this general invite, and when it was ready, they sent them out, and they didn't want to come. And so he sends out the second people. And you know what they were saying? They said, uh, after he said that, says they paid no attention. Think about that for a second. They paid no attention. They were, they were unimpressed, really, is what it means, with what he was doing. One said, he went off to his farm, i got to go check some cows out. And the other one says, i got to go check my business out. But then there was a third group It says, the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And you know who the servants are. It's the prophets again. It's the apostles. It's the people that are messengers on behalf of the king. You see this same thing coming back again. But don't miss out what the king does. He was angry, and it says at this point now, they don't want to honor his son, so he is sending in troops, and they're going to burn the city down. A lot of people believe that this is 70 A.D. when Rome came in and burnt it to the ground. 70 A.D., these people that thought that they ruled the world, even though Rome was there, when they saw that that there's a tradition that says that there was a Roman soldier that threw a a fiery log into the temple, 
and shrieks went up all over when they started to see the temple really burning. But the whole city was burned, taken down, raised to, the, to nothing. And then he says, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding as many as you find. In other words, he didn't put any stipulations on it. He says, go out, invite everyone. Doesn't matter what their race is, doesn't matter what their gender is, doesn't matter what their educational or economic background is. In fact, there was no worldly criteria at all. I mean, think about that. Have you ever thought about the fact that I can come from little podunk Mississippi and God says, Doug, I love you. And I even make terrible choices in my life. I'm not even a good person. I'm not a good moral person. I make terrible moral choices. And he says, Doug, I love you. Have you ever thought about the fact that you know, you, you didn't, you know, maybe some of you did come from a good background. The crazy thing is, he says, bring good and bad. So whether you're good morally or whether you've made terrible choices in life, whether you come from a lot of money or you come from no money, it doesn't matter. And that's the beautiful part about the King's invitation. It's open to everyone. He doesn't say just this class of people. And that's why I think it's so tragic when we allow the church to get sucked into political arguments and it divides us as a nation. Because, and I'm not talking about the nation of America. I'm talking about the nations of believers in this country. We should never allow political or any other thing to divide the body of Christ. The blood of Christ should be thicker than any other bond that we have. And unfortunately, it's not that way now. But a lot of what we see, I think, is chaff, too. There's a lot of chaff in America. People that call themselves believers... And I think what's happening is you're starting to see the chaff from the wheat. And as we go through this, you've got to determine what you're going to be, chaff or wheat. Because I'm going to be wheat. I don't want to be chaff. Because the king is a gracious king, and he allows us to come into his party, to be part of this celebration. And you know, Galatians 3 says, As many of you who were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. It's open to everybody. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been restricted from going someplace. Like you've gone to go in and they say, do you have a ticket? No, I'm sorry, you can't get in here. That's a terrible feeling. There's going to be a lot of people, a lot of people, when they pass from this life to the next, they're thinking they got a ticket. It's not about the ticket, but they're thinking they got a ticket and they ain't getting in. He's going to say, I don't know you. Who are you? But I did this, Lord, Matthew 7. I did these things. I, I went to Bible study. I went to church. I read the Bible. Did all, I don't know you. And, and there, you see, because even though it's open to everyone, it does make demands on us. And that's what we see. Because there was a guy who was invited to the party and he thinks that he can come in on his own terms to the king's party. Now stop and think for a second. Let's say you get invited to a state dinner at the White House. You get invited up there and you look at your calendar, you're man, I'm going to this. It's going to have dignitaries from every country and you're going to be sitting at the head table. And they go, but you got to wear a coat and tie. Oh, I ain't wearing a coat and tie. 
<clears throat> I'm not wearing a coat and tie. And they say, well, you have to. You have two choices. You can either go without wearing a coat and tie and they're going to throw you out. Or you can just say, I'm not going to go. This guy says, I'm going to go and I'm going to go on my own terms. And a lot of people do that with Christ. And the reason he's telling this story is he's saying that there are many who are called, but few are chosen. You see, there's a calling on the outside that's a general invitation to everybody. And you know how you know the ones that were chosen before the foundation of the earth? Because those are the ones who have on the right clothes. And there's a human responsibility that somehow marries up with God's sovereignty in a way that we can't explain. People throughout, throughout time have argued You've got people over here that say God chooses so we don't have to evangelize. People over here say if we don't evangelize, then they'll never come to Christ. <laughs> and you see two extremes, and we, both, we know both of those things exist in Scripture. And we can't explain it, and it drives us up the wall because we want to be able to define everything about God and everything that God says, and we can't. There's just some things that are mysteries we'll never know. But he says right here, many are called, few are chosen. He also says uh, about our being chosen in Ephesians 1.4 and 2 Timothy 1.9. So it talks about that. But what does he mean? It's this king's love must be overflowing in us. In other words, <laughs> you remember the landscape fountains that I reference a lot? You have bowls. You have three. You have a big bowl, a smaller bowl, a smaller bowl, and then a top bowl. We are the top bowl. John 7, 37 says, Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and, and, and drink. And what? And out of you will flow rivers of living water. And he says what that water is, the Holy Spirit. But guess what? If this top bowl is dry, how much, how much water is going to go? If you're, not getting dr if you're not drinking from Jesus, you're going to be dry, and there's going to be no overflow to the people in the next bowl, which is your family, and no overflow to the next bowl, which is in your circle of influence, and no overflow to that bottom bowl, which is people you haven't even met yet. That overflow has nothing to do with your effort. It has everything to do with you staying connected with the vine, like it says in John 15. Abide in me. Our, our role as a branch is a as a branch is just to stay connected. If we stay connected, guess what? Fruit pops out. You don't even have to try to do it. It just, but you got to stay connected. And what he's saying here is he goes in there, and this guy wants to come to Christ on his terms. He's coming and he's saying, "Yeah, I was invited, but I ain't wearing that wedding garment you gave me. I'm going to come the way I want to come," which is the same self righteous, selfish attitude the Pharisees had. And he says, "Get him out of here." But here's the deal. He's thrown out. And do you know why he binds him? Because if, if he doesn't bind him, he's going to keep trying to get back in. He binds him and throws him into outer darkness. And he throws him where there's gnashing of teeth. That just means great regret. Doug, is this someone who is just trying to get to heaven on their own effort? Or is it someone who thinks they're a believer and is trusted, but then they're still trying to get in there? Okay. You know what I'm what I think what he's talking about here is he's talking he, when he says many are called, few are chosen. He's identifying the fact that it's open to everyone because you got to remember the listeners thought it was, first of all, only open to Jews. So it's open to everyone, but not even the Gentiles that are now being included 
not even all of them are going to be included in it. It's those whose mark, what is the mark of a believer? Fruit. Remember, a fruitless tree is a useless tree. Even the thief on the cross had fruit. See, the garment, I think, is wearing Christ's righteousness, right? It's wearing Christ. You can't wear His righteousness without, wearing, without producing fruit. I'm absolutely convinced that you cannot walk in the righteousness of Christ without having a little bit of fruit. It's not tons of fruit. The thief on the cross did it. He wore the right wedding garment for three hours of his entire existence. But for three hours he wore it. For he was on that cross and he rebuked the other thief and he said, don't you realize who he is? We deserve this. He doesn't. He, he, he exhibited fruit in that moment. John Calvin said, faith cannot be separated from good works and good works proceed only from faith. All Christ is saying here is that we are called by the Lord under the condition that we be renewed in our spirits into his image. And therefore, if we are to remain in his house, the old man with all his blemishes is to be cast off. We are to practice the new life so that our appearance may correspond to our honorable calling. I am crucified with Christ. Yet it's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Remember we read back in Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He is the wedding garment. Christ is the wedding garment. This guy's going, yeah, I want to come to the party. I want all the benefits, but I ain't putting on the wedding garment. I, I was sharing this illustration this morning. It's like we, Paul Frey's played for the Jets and he comes to the morning session. I, can you ever imagine a football player being drafted by the NFL by a team and they go, okay, we start practice two a days next week. Oh, I don't want practice. What? Are you kidding me? Oh, no, I, I just want to play. I just, in fact, I don't even want to play. I just want to wear the uniform. I just want to be a New York Jet. I've always wanted to be a Jet. There's not a team in the NFL that would keep that player. But yet churches all across America have a lot of people on their rolls who do that. They do the same thing. I just, I just want to wear the name Jesus because I want to make sure I get that X in the block. And see, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, in a church in a, in a way of thinking that said that I have to be good, otherwise God may not like me. Oh, they taught me about Jesus, but i got to be good because I may not go to heaven if I'm not good. So my whole motivation for being good was so I didn't want to upset God, so He cast me into hell. The righteousness of Christ was realized for me that day in the cockpit when that bird hit me. And I'd been living a reprobate life. God said, I love you. And you're mine. Start wearing my son. Start wearing my son. Stop living for yourself. You're my child. And it became very clear to me, it was not my daily actions that were the wedding dress. It was living like I was a son of the king. And when you do that, you understand that when you live a certain way out there, you make choices that reflect that honor that is due that son of the king. And so, Jesus said this to them and then they got upset. 
They were really upset. And so they started plotting, it says in verse 15, how to entangle them in the words. And so they sent disciples. They didn't go themselves. Jesus knew who they were. So they tried to be sneaky. They sent some of their disciples and they go up with this. And by the way, it says their disciples went with the Herodians. Now the Herodians, the Herodians were pro-Rome because Herod and Rome had a good relationship. Herod the Great. Archelaus had been kicked out and replaced with Pontius Pilate, but they were trying to get one of the Herodians back in down there. And what happened is the Pharisees go, well, you know what? If we get the Herodians to go with us, with our disciples, and we get Jesus to say that we shouldn't pay taxes, the Herodians can go tell the Romans they'll arrest him and they'll take care of our problem. But if he says we should pay taxes, then we've got him because the Roman coin had a picture, the tribute penny, had a picture of Tiberius Caesar on the front, and it said, wrote it down, it said, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. It claimed that Augustus was God. And on the back was a picture of Livia Drusilla, who was Caesar Augustus' wife, and it had her in her priestly robe sitting on a throne, and it said, Pax which is peace, the goddess of peace. So if Jesus said, you have to pay that, then the Pharisees would go to the people and say, see, he loves Rome. He, he, is, he is holding up idolatry, breaking the first, second, third commandment. And so they, were, they thought of this, and so these, these disciples go, teacher, we know you're, you teach truth. You're a good guy. And you teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about appearances or anybody's opinion. I mean, this stuff was true, but this is flattery. It's like when my kids go, Dad, you're so awesome. And I go, okay, what do you want? That's exactly what they're doing. They're flattering to try to disarm him. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes? And the word there is really tribute. It's not taxes. It's tribute. But it was a tax. The word is kinsus, which is like census. It's the word we get census from. And it was a poll tax. You paid 1% to Rome or a tribute penny, a silver tribute penny, that had Caesar Tiberius' picture on one side and, like I said, Livia, the wife or his mom, on the other. And it proclaimed he was God. So in paying that tax, you were saying, we worship the emperor. That's why it was such a bad thing for the Jewish people. When Jesus had that question, they tried to put him in a box. And you know what he does? I love what he does. He says, show me the coin. Now, first of all, when he says, show me the coin, they produced a coin, which meant they had a coin. So the very thing that they were against they had so he already had them in one way because they were hypocrites and he calls them he says why put me to the test you hypocrites he, he's not mincing words anymore and he, he says so they brought him a denarius by the way this is that coin this is the coin you can see it afterwards you can see Tiberius on one side and his mom in her priestly robe sitting on the throne or other. You can't quite make out the encryption inscription on it, but you can see it. It says Pax on one side, and the other it's written obviously in Latin, Tiberius Caesar Divi Agvis Philus 
Augustus. <laughs> so, but it makes the statement. And uh, this is it's an actual tribute penny. This is what he would have been looking at and tell, showing them. And he said, tell me what, whose likeness is on it? The word there is icon. We get the icon from that word icon from that. And what autograph or inscription? And so they said Caesar's. So he said to them, then render, which is a different word from tribute. Render means to give something that they're obligated to give. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now here's what's so amazing about that. When he said whose image is on it, he said, give to Caesar the things. Say, whose image is on this? Caesar's. So give to Caesar's what's Caesar's. Whose image do we carry? What does the word say about the image that we carry? God's image. We carry his image. So if we give to Caesar this, what do we give to God? Ourselves. Psalm 100, verse 3. The Lord made us. We are His. We are His people. We are His sheep. The sheep of His pasture. Isaiah 43. I created you. I formed you. I, I know you by name. You are mine. He says. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Over in 7, chapter 7, 23, it says the same thing. Bought with a price. Remember in John 18 where Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world? He makes a very clear statement for us here about government. I think this is really the first separation of church and state in history. Because what he says is, it is okay to pay a pagan coin to a pagan king. You get that? I know Christians. I know a guy out in Dallas who's been in jail for five years because he refused to pay taxes and he said because he's a Christian. And he said, God, he's not going to pay taxes to a heathen government. I think God would have a problem with that based on what Jesus is teaching here. You see, Rome had given the, the Jewish people highways, they, they brought services in there to them. Yes, they oppressed them, but there were other things. And they were more pagan and worse than any government we've had in our country. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. So guys, I, I'm just going to tell you that if, if you don't pay taxes, if you cheat on your taxes and you think because you're a Christian it's okay to do that, it's not. He's very clear. That you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We live in a country that has been blessed. Yes, the government has issues and flaws. But look at the road system. You, you, you want go to go to some other countries. You travel in and go try to do some things that you can do here. Just any day here. And you can't do some of this stuff in other countries. All the hassle you have to go through. There are people I know right now over in India that have to wait for almost three weeks just to get a visa to go to another country. You and I can just get it overnight almost. 
All that is because our government has put structures in place for us to do that. And, and so Jesus is saying it takes money to run these things, and so I don't have a problem with you giving this money to Rome. But you give yourself to me. He claims ownership over us. And that's the thing, a king's love that claims ownership. He is right here teaching them, you give to God what's God's. All of it ties up in the fact that, guys, I, I hope that you leave today thinking and understanding, think about and understanding, that our worthiness to be invited to the wedding is not based on any human factor other than reception of the invitation. Reception of the invitation and the term set by the king. I think we leave out that second part sometimes. And listen, I know some very well-meaning people. I know I, I know they, they love the Lord and they have gone out in an effort to be pragmatic. And people, I, I've always had a very different approach than some of these guys. And I love them. And they've done a lot of great things in the kingdom. But when, when somebody wants to come to Christ, I, I, think it's, I personally think it's wrong for us to tell somebody that you can come to Jesus any way you are and stay the way you are. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's biblical based on what we just read. I mean, when you come to Christ, He's going to change you because He's going to use you. If He doesn't change you, you have no credibility. And so that's the whole point. He draws you in to then disperse you out as His messengers. He, see, our culture has made it about just getting guys to heaven. It was never just about that. It was always to be redeployed as His servants in the world until He comes again. And, and when you start to understand that and you start to see that our role is to be that of a soldier, to use Paul's terminology, some guy who's serving in the battle, we're in a battle. It's not, okay, I'm just on the train. It's a very different approach to walking the Christian life. One's coasting and one's out there getting shot at. Missiles fired at you. Bombs dropped on you. I, I promise you, you start really walking for Christ, you start really staying close to Him, you, you better have your armor on, man. Because the enemy goes, okay, you think you're going to follow Christ? I've got some, I've got some things I'm going to send at you. And there's a lot of gray-haired guys in this room that can attest to that. A king's love that is relentless, that is ultimately rejected, but a king's love that is open, overflowing, and it claims ownership on us. So as we leave today, I want you to think about these questions. Am I rejecting his invitation? Am I rejecting it? Or am I dressed in the proper clothes? Is it His righteousness I'm really trusting in? Or have I allowed the world to kind of seep in here and help me think that I can somehow be good enough even though I know I can't? It's not what do you know. It's how are you living your life? What are people seeing around you? And then third, and I think this is the one that really takes away from the tax issue, is am I living like my heart belongs to anything other than Jesus? When people see me, do they see someone whose heart belongs to anything other than Jesus? Because what I, I, I really want in my life and what I think 
he's trying to say here in this tax issue is he owns us. He owns us. So give to God the things that are God's. Let's go ahead and pray.